0: Hi everyone, it's Yaki Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers podcast. A podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. Tom Hammond is the co-founder and CEO of UserWise, a company that is shaping up live ops in gaming. And they call themselves the world's first player experience management platform trusted by teams to power their live ops all in one place. Tom is an entrepreneur who likes to share a lot about his founder journey on social media and also on his podcast, Mastering Retention. In this discussion, we talk about bootstrapping a company versus the VC path. How small game studios with not a lot of cash and experience can still break out, and what Tom thinks are the reasons that developers don't build games with live ops from day one. Uh, just a note, I had a really bad flu when we were recording this, so my voice was very down here. So it's, it is what it is. Here's the episode with Tom. All right, we're live. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks. It's, it's truly an honor to be here. And I love all the stuff you put out. So this is awesome.
0: Thanks. It's really good to have you. you you've been super active on social media, writing about gaming, entrepreneurship and stuff like that. I think there's, there's a lot we can cover in like 50 minutes or, or so of talking. First question I wanted to ask you, if, if you could share your origin story and how you made your way into gaming.
1: Well mine, mine is actually less direct than my little brother who you know went into data science, <laughs> got a job at a at a bank and then was recruited by Activision. But you know, mine mine was a little bit more indirect. Um I guess I've always had the uh the entrepreneurial sickness as you would, where I see things and instead of just being satisfied like normal people, I think about how I could make it better or different or improve upon it. And so, you know, I kind of had that all along the way and I don't know. I I don't know where it came from, but I always thought I was going to be a doctor. So I actually studied like pre-med and stuff in school and decided to get a job at a company actually called Epic, not Epic Games. They make electronic medical records software stuff, which I actually think they they power Finland's system and like over 50% of the US. But I was like, oh, I'm going to be like a technical doctor and like that'll ensure I get into med school and, you know, do X, Y, Z and stuff. But while I was there, I actually figured out that I could code and that it's kind of like playing a game. And suddenly all of these ideas that I've had before that weren't attainable, suddenly were. So yeah, you know, I think I had a a slew of failed startups generally related to the ideas. Although one idea that that failed where I actually met one of my successful co-founders, if you look at Uber Freight, where basically they do like trucking and stuff, we had an idea back at that point in time to get from you know, like one city to the next, a trucker would like go on these load boards and like they'd like bid on different things. And we we're like, oh, we could probably just like set up some algorithms to do all that stuff. It failed because nobody trusted us and we didn't know what we were doing or whatnot, but it, it got us in the path. And then a few years went by and yeah, there was an app that came out that would uh, show you like an ad every time you unlock your phone. And I was like, well, that's interesting. But what if we change it? What if we asked you a survey question instead? Like that I could probably pay more. It's going to be more interesting. And that got me on the idea of surveys. And at that point in time, I played more Clash of Clans than I would like to admit to. But man, I just, I was a bad, bad player. I didn't, I refused to spend money on that game, right? I was like, I'm not going <laughs> to drop 20 bucks on this game when I can, you know, spend $20 yeah. and get the Diablo 2 battle chest, <laughs> you know, of hours of yeah. energy. And it finally hit me. I was like, what if I could take surveys to get free content. And that led to the the formation of my first company called theorem reach. So that was a fun time. Actually struggled initially to get a, a CTO on board. So further taught myself how to code, kind of built that all up from scratch. Eventually we did get a CTO. He kind of came in and was like, well, I'm not really sure how it works, but it works. So kudos to you there. And he made it like 4,000 times, you know, more efficient, like overnight. It was crazy. But yeah, you know, we kind of stumbled into bootstrapping that company, just a lot of organic growth and stuff like that. So pretty much was just like the three co-founders, like we bootstrapped that to like eight figures in revenue. Finally, along the way, <laughs> I realized the importance of actually having like vision and values. Like we probably wasted three years, like, you know, chasing the shiny things. But once we finally like learned to establish like the vision and where we're going and why we're doing it, like it became so much easier to you know, evaluate all the opportunities that came up with like, well, is this thing actually going to help us move towards that thing? And if it is, then that's great. Let's do it. If it's not, throw it out. We don't need to spend our time doing that. And that just completely changed the company, figuring out how to hire people that are smarter and more talented than ourselves, you know, also changed the company. And it's so awesome once you get like the right team on board. So yeah. Yeah. Did that for a long time, kind of along the way, a lot of the folks that we worked with were also, you know, in games. And as you start working in games on like monetization, oftentimes it was like, well, how do we add rewarded video without compromising our IAPs? And then that kind of led to live ops and you just, you know, very quickly get dragged into all sorts of fun things. So did a lot of general consulting and stuff through the years. And probably about four years ago was just kind of looking to be a little bit more than like another monetization SDK as you know, product teams love SDKs, right? So we kind of went out and I I took just kind of like a blank slate approach. And I talked to probably about 50 different game publishers, large and small, just kind of trying to understand like, what are your biggest problems that you're having right now? What are the things that you're trying to fix? Actually, the two questions that I like to ask, and I actually point this out to a lot of people when I talk to entrepreneurs, you know, what are two to three problems that you are actively trying to solve Right now, within the next 12 months. And then the second question is, if I had a magic wand and I could solve anything in relation to X, what would you want most? And what's interesting is you'll start to see trends. Usually after like five conversations, I recommend you do at least like 20. But like, what are the problems that people are encountering over and over again? What are the things that they're really, they care enough about right now to actually be trying to fix? And like, what do they wish they had? Once you have those trends, then you can kind of go through the process of saying, well, can I actually fix that from a technological standpoint? Um, If you can, that's great. Build that thing. You're much more likely to actually be building something that's valuable enough that people want to pay for. Failure to do that often leads to a nice-to-have product. I know that because I've done that many times. So, you know, we kept hearing with UserWise that, you know, games have really shifted to this games-as-a-service model, live ops, as you will segmentation is hard. A-B testing is hard. Scheduling and managing the complexity of everything that's going on is, you know, very hard. And there's really nothing out there to help people do this. And so we saw everyone basically building LiveOps tools in-house over and over again. Like I think EA has built something like 40 different times. And every time they build it, I mean, they're probably spending at least two to $10 million, like just in developer costs of like, you know, building that to say nothing of like the, you know, years of time that it takes to really build something great. And if you look at the system, probably 90, 95% of it is the same from game to game. And it's that last five to 10% that gets hard coded so deeply into a game that you can't take it out and reuse it. And so it really just became apparent that like game operations is the future, games as a service is the future, but we're in this, you know, pre-Unity, pre-Unreal phase where everyone's building a game engine and it's just, you know, such a waste of resources. So a few pivots and some things later, and that kind of led to user-wise and where we've been working today. So, yeah.
0: Nice. Very, very cool stuff. I'll pick up one point there that I'm thinking a lot often about this. Like there are, you know, game studios are great at making games, but they're spending so much time, you know, outside of, their core competence, which is building the tech and the tools to support okay. that. And it's it's a never-ending cycle. People say that they they're too customized their games. It's better to build your own thing, like for analytics, for for live ops, running campaigns, whatnot. But then is that like worth it to actually bring on that overhead, that team to start building out that thing, like versus just You know, keeping headcounts small, things much smoother, easier, focus on making games that just utilize the tools out there and not focusing on building the neatest analytics uh, live ops pipeline system.
1: When I think about startups, I think that the more that you try to bite off, the less the chance of success that you're actually going to have. And Maybe it's true that building out a live op system or an analytic system or or whatever is customized just to your game is going to be better in the long run. But I would actually argue that when you're starting a game studio, like your biggest challenge right now is building a game that is fun enough that people retain and actually come back and play that game. And like your absolute everything should be focused on that one, is this actually a fun retaining experience? And anything that you are adding on that isn't focused on that is taking your attention away from that. And that is going to make the chance that you actually create that high retaining experience lower. So if you're willing to risk that, you know, (laughs) you're welcome to, but it's gonna lower your chances of overall success. And so like if I was starting a game studio today, yeah, I'd probably look to like user-wise. Heck, I might even look to like starting on like Roblox or, you know, something else like that. Like, how can I minimize the amount of stuff that I have to like spend effort on so that I can focus on finding that fun gameplay experience. And mm-hmm. then once I get there, then I can expand on it. How, how do I boost the monetization with the retail? Like you can always build upon things. Like a lot of people think you have to go from like zero to a hundred, But really what I found in in entrepreneurship is like, it's a stepwise approach. It's like, okay, well, maybe long-term, I do want to build a game engine and build all these things and whatnot, like Activision, but you're not Activision Mm -hmm. today, right? (laughs) You got a lot of steps you got to go through. And so like, you got to enjoy the journey and go through those steps. And so like, maybe I want to build a game engine, but today I'm going to use Unity. You know, maybe I want to build an analytics tool, but today I'm going to use Amplitude or game analytics or whatever take out as much of that stuff as you can and build that stepwise process. At least that's, that's how I would go with it.
0: Yeah. Like I'm looking at so many pitch decks that are coming through for me to, you know, Hey, let's have a call. I want to pitch what I'm doing, but I, I never see a company that's focused on building out products by starting off utilizing something like what you guys are building like, hey, we're we're actually building this on top of Userwise's live ops system. It's always like, okay, like we have a game. It's building the Unity. Now we're getting KPIs. But I would be super interested in in it's just a mindset difference in a in a team that would approach. Okay, we're building on top of this thing. Like we're building on top of a live services platform that enables us to test out cool concepts that are you know live ops driven from day one
1: yeah i we're actually gonna start working i think with a, a studio which I, I won't mention right now because i don't know that i can but they are actually kind of a, a startup within a much a larger organization and they're they're, they're doing some very interesting things i think in, in some cases they're trying to make supercell like teams to, to make games and stuff like that but their approach is we want to be 100 percent focused on the games. And so they're, you know, evaluating all the different backend as a service providers and looking to add user-wise for live ops. I think I forget who they pick for analytics, but like, they're not doing any of that stuff. And I tell you what, if anyone had the resources to actually build and do those things, it's this company because they've got the parent company, right? But they said, no, we're not doing any of that. We are just focused on getting these really awesome mobile game concepts built and iterated and prototyped. And we're just going to use all this stuff to, you know, scale it up because we don't need to spend our time doing that. Like let a third party spend all that time, you know, building a better game engine than we probably ever could ourselves anyway. And I I thought that was very interesting.
0: It is. It is. I, I sent over a few things that I wanted to talk to you about today on this podcast. I, I wanted to talk about like different kind of modes of making games, specifically. Now now we we talked a bit about live ops, but I, I want to come back to live ops a bit better. First off, like, like if you think about small studios breaking out, it's a highly competitive market out there. Like just today, Line Break, the company from Gabe Layden announced like a two hundred million. Dollar funding round, seed two hundred million seed. What do you think? Like, can small game studios with not a lot of cash, not a lot of experience, still break out in the games market today? Like, I want to hear first your thoughts, and I can share mine then.
1: That's that's a great question. This touches on a whole lot of different things that I like to think about a lot. And funnily enough, like. When we were coming up with the questions for this podcast, like I was asked this very question like a day before you said it over and I was like, oh, it's very, very fascinating. So I think there's, you know, different mindsets when it comes to building a company, right? On the one hand, I'm going to say there's the all in VC mindset of I'm going to make or take like a huge amount of money and I'm just all in. I'm going to either build a billion dollar unicorn company or I'm going to run out of cash and die. And usually people don't like to hear this, but usually it's a run out of cash and die. You know, VCs make most of their money on like one to three of their like 20, you know, portfolio companies and the rest just kind of, you know, fizzle out. So that's one approach. And most people, that's the only approach that they really think about. There's also the approach of like completely on the other side, which is like, I'm gonna go super slow and bootstrap this thing to profitability. And then there's kind of some middle grounds in in different areas and stuff. I don't really want to say that any of the approaches are wrong, but they all come with different things. Like the more money that you take from someone, the more rules and the more things that you have to follow and abide by, the less that you take, (laughs) the more you can kind of do it yourselves. And there's kind of a middle ground in there. Do I think that small studios can still find success today? Yes, I do. Do I think that you can do it in the same ways? Absolutely not. Like I think about the post IDFA UA situation right now, right? Nobody can scale games. Like, Dude, I've seen freaking awesome games going to soft launch, even with like solid numbers that had I seen them before soft launch, I would have invested in. And then two, three months later, they're getting killed because their UA costs are just skyrocketed past their LTPs. And they don't have like a chance that they're ever going to get there and it kind of blows my mind so like i don't think you can scale it in the way that you scaled it before in like 2017 2018 or whatnot so when you get into a situation like this at least i as an entrepreneur say okay well i can't win in this game so i need to find a way to cheat or to rewrite the rules so that i can get by right that'd be the mindset so how would i cheat or, or rewrite the rules well you know, if I'm looking at UA stuff, like I would probably seriously be thinking about TikTok. Like, I think that's highly under- actually. Zombies.io kind of did that, and that's how they scaled up, right? They reinvented the wheel and they focused on something new. Nobody else was really doing TikTok. Well, they found a way to, to use that. I'm probably overly fascinated with Roblox right now, but like, you know, I think Roblox is another untapped area that like a small studio, especially if they're pretty experienced, could come in learn the audience and build some really great games and dominate there. Cause UA costs and Roblox are like super cheap right now. I would probably also, you know, take a look at like, what are some other avenues that everyone else is writing off that still has decent number of users that could support a small studio, maybe web-based games, maybe, you know, instant games or, you know, Facebook games or something like, like, yeah, everyone kind of writes that off, but is there enough of a user base that can, you know, generate enough revenue that can support my small studio? I would say probably yes in any of those avenues. Like you don't have to follow the system that everyone goes by. So like if I, you know we were starting a studio today, I'd probably say, hey, let's go dominate some of these like smaller platforms and get some solid games that are running and generating solid revenue, run them on live ops, run them well. And then okay. Now that we've got something stable here, well, now we can maybe take a bigger gamble on something because if that bigger gamble fails, well, guess what? We still have that strong baseline. That's kind of what I mean by like the stepwise process. So like, you don't have to jump from one to a hundred. You can go to one to ten, get that solid baseline. You know, before when hyper casual was still working, I would have said, well, let's get like five to ten solid hyper casual games going, each generating you know like ten thousand dollars a month or whatever. It doesn't really work, you know, there anymore, but you know. What is that one to 10 step that like first place that you can go into? And so like, if I was a small studio, that's probably where I would go for Like, can I find one of those, you know, baseline levels and then we can, you know, go for the double or the triple or the home run on a future, future hit. I guess that's kind of the approach.
0: In a way, it's like, you're not following the fads of what everybody else is trying to do. You're not doing a casual mobile game for a broad audience, but like tackling a niche. That nobody else dares to do. Yeah, I totally agree.
1: Yeah, the one last thing that I forgot that I wanted to talk about too. Whether or not people believe that web3 is the next thing, the one thing that I think they're getting right is community building. Now, community building, as you are well aware of, takes time, right? <laughs> to- took a while to build up, you know, elite game developers to where you had, you know, a solid following of people. Most people aren't willing to put in the time and the effort to actually build up a community. But if you build up a you know, community to build a game together, you're going to add a lot more like intangibles than you really realize, because if yep. these people are actually helping you design the game and to build the game and to test the game and to change it, like it doesn't matter what sort of, advertising of similar genre games or whatever is going to come out to them, they're going to be loyal to your game because that's like who they have become. It's become a part of them. So, you know, if you're a small studio and you have the time, time is key to build up the community while you're doing the game. I think you're going to have a much higher chance of at least having a solid baseline of players that you can kind of build upon. Now, can you get enough and will they generate enough revenue is another question but I'm, I'm I very much like that aspect of the Web3 games.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about it a lot as well. I think comparing like a UA driven approach of growing a user base versus the community slow, like organic growth where you're adding value or you're creating some value for, for an audience. I think you, UA is the success is very binary. Mm-hmm. Either you have ROAS or you don't. But the community is definitely it's hard to really like get wrong, <laughs> to be honest. It's it's not as quick. You can't really scale by just pouring money into a community growth phase. I, I think there's there are tactics. I've seen a few web three companies who have built out amazing growth teams who are then doing everything, everything they can from taking a community from a few hundred actives to a few thousand to the tens of thousands in yep. in a matter of months. So it's a t- different ball game. But yeah, that that's definitely the area that I'm I'm most interested in web3 as like it, it's a bit like hey, let's let's pull back from UA that we've done for 10 years. Let's look at what what else could we actually do to build an audience. So, yeah. Yeah, other like things regarding the small game studio let's go back to that question a bit because i'm thinking about like the i don't know if you know stumble guys this hit Mm. mobile (laughs) title that just it's
1: crazy man (laughs) yeah
0: it's it's a finnish small team from the city of kajani just like if you look at the finnish map it's kind of like at the center of finland like from north to south west to east and there's nobody (laughs) that's a super (laughs) small town middle of the woods they have like a a school there a gaming school so I, i believe a lot of those people actually have studied there and they built up something that's doesn't sound that like weird in a way thinking about like all guys like what what could it look like on mobile and let's just do it and it worked so that's, that's a good example of a small studio actually doing stuff where they didn't have the team that could raise probably from VCs without showing this kind of traction. Now they're sort of everybody's talking about them. So,
1: No, I mean, so I think a lot of founders and a lot of people that will send me like pitch decks and things like that, or they're asking for advice or we're doing strategy sessions or whatnot. A lot of the times what I find that I'm sharing with founders is, you know, usually they're, they're looking to raise money at like the pre, even prototype phase. And, and I'm like, you don't need to do this. Like, yes, maybe you could be successful. Now, right now it's gonna be much harder, but like maybe you could be successful in your raise here. But what are you gonna raise at? Like a $1.5 million valuation, you're gonna give 20% of your company away? I don't think you need to do that right now. Like if you have the right founding team, where you've got your art generalist, your programming generalist, your like, you know, biz dev guy or whoever else, you know, usually three to five people. You should pretty much be able to do everything yourselves. So, you know, do you really need to go and raise a bunch of money? Like, what if you quit your jobs and you just all focus for like three months on building a prototype? Or what if you didn't even quit your jobs? Like, you know, to be fair, going out and raising money is pretty much a full-time job. Like, what if you just treat your full-time job as if that is you going in angel investing right now, and then your other full-time job is after hours and on the weekends when you're, you know, writing the code? That's how we treat Ethereum reach right? I, I got that actual advice from an advisor. I was like, why? Why don't you not spend your time doing this raise? It's going to be hard and it's going to be time consuming. You already know what you're doing at your job. You're doing it well. You're getting paid well. Why don't you just? Treat that as your full-time job. And then you do your other 40, 60 hours of like doing the coding and nights and weekends or whatnot. That's what I did Uh, and it worked. Now, not everyone can do that. You know, there's responsibilities and things like that, but regardless of what you're doing, like if you're starting a company, there's going to be sacrifice involved, right? And you're probably going to lose friends and relationships are going to be harmed. And hopefully people understand, you know, what you're doing and why you're doing it. And you should have reasons for it because starting a company isn't for everyone, But, you know, what if you just took a few extra months, maybe it's a little bit slower than you want to go, but like you get that game prototype out. Why don't you Hmm. get some real metrics on it? Like get that in front of real people and get some real validation, you know, because if you suddenly have 50 or 60% day one retention, I can tell you what, it's going to be a lot easier to raise. It's going to be a lot faster to raise. And, you know, but, you know, do you even need to just raise at that point? Like, why not go a little bit further? Like, I think, In today's world, like the things that are out there that are available to you, even like user-wise, Unity, you know, there's all these different tools and things that make it so much easier for us to do so much more than we could before. Like, you know, starting a game studio before Unity, like you literally needed a ton of resources and people because you had to build a game engine. Well, you don't have to do that anymore. You can just use the game engine and build the game. So it's become a lot faster and a lot easier. So for small studios, especially folks looking to raise money, I'm always of the mindset of like, keep pushing to the point where you've got something that is enticing enough that VCs will start coming to you because I tell you what they do. And sometimes they can get a little bit annoying if you get far enough in, right? Especially PE firms. But uh, (laughs) I I always say like, how far can you get? And like, do you really need to raise money right now? Because, Mm. yeah.
0: I totally agree with those. And I I think something I've observed is like when you are a founding team, leaving your job at a big games company, putting up a new company, raising a million or two, you're basically starting the clock to actually find something that works before you run out of money. And I wouldn't at least want to start that clock if I'm not (laughs) sure that I have something that at least can you know, we can work on it to actually make enough to pay the salaries at some point, like like validating that and then getting better terms for the raise. I just don't want to be in the situation where, you know, 12 months down the line, I cannot raise because I couldn't find a game that works.
1: i tell you what, it is, it is stressful. Like when I went full-time on theorem reach, we were making revenue, but it wasn't profitable enough that I was paying much. So, Little bit while on my nice salary. And so I think we managed to save up like forty thousand dollars. But when I went full time, I was personally losing two thousand dollars a month. So I mean, I was definitely on the clock. And I mean, I had wife and family. So like I was feeling it. Now within six months, luckily we increased revenue and things went well. And I was able to increase my salary and get away from that. But when I was on that time frame clock ticking down. If I had that clock and I didn't have a very clear path, which I did, it would have been just super nerve wracking. So yeah, I think the further you can get towards having that, hey, here's the clear plan. We have what's working. We just have to execute on it. um, Just take away a lot of that stress.
0: Yeah. In a way, like the whole venture back model is so, it, it is so different from a bootstrap mode where you don't have these clocks. You don't have like a honeymoon after you signed. The fundraise and the monies in the bank, where everything's great, you're still getting like congrats on social media for your fundraise post. That's contradicting for what, what like entrepreneurship in most cases is, where it is a lot of work, nonstop work. Yeah. More stuff that you could do on behalf of showing that things work before you go and raise and then getting into that. Like issue of having a clock, but possibly not ticking down to a moment where it's like, there's nothing to save anymore.
1: I think the other thing that I've seen, and and just a few weeks ago, I was talking to like, there was like one day I talked to like three CEOs in a day and they'd all been just going through some crazy stuff. And like one had been VC funded, they had a good game, it was going well. They had another game that was showing even better metrics and things like that. And so they went, you know, and they've been hiring a bunch of people and they confidently went in to try to like raise more money and they were sold no. And they ended up having to like cut 75% of like their studio. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that I think a lot of people are not prepared to be able to do, like firing down to like a few people are even ultimately down to like just the founding team again, like that'll take it out of you. And so I think even when you raise money successfully, I think you have to have some elements of caution and how you're hiring and how you're operating on things, because you really never know if you're going to be able to close that next round.
0: Mm. No. Yeah.
1: But I also like to, if you do get into raising, I think you should always be talking openly to your investors to really know like, hey, what do you want to see in order to support me in the next round? And usually most investors have like the the next level, you know, VC firms that they like to work with and they can interview you and you can ask the same questions of like, what do you want to see to make sure that I can successfully raise that next round? And so I think you should always have that on your mindset.
0: Yeah, that's totally true. And, and it is a bit like now that mobile is changing a lot since UA is becoming more difficult. I think that's a, a big question that, now everybody should be thinking about in another way, since it's so hard to do UA, what do we need to do to go to the next stage as a venture-backed company? I wanted to ask you about the LiveOps stuff a bit more, because one thing that I see a lot in game developers is that the live ops is kind of the last thing on the roadmap that developers usually start tackling. What are your thoughts on why that could be?
1: So I have a few theories. So one theory is, is that some game developers don't come with the right live ops mindset. And what I mean by that is like this over the air mindset. So like when you integrate user wise, like if you're fully integrated, you can literally change an AB test and configure and, and, you know, just about anything in user-wise and that will fundamentally change how that thing works, you know, down in your game. So the games that come to us that have already done that usually tend to be a little bit more advanced and like maybe the way that they're powering that is some huge JSON file that they want to get away, you know, yeah. from editing. And, and those actually tend to be pretty easy integrations for user-wise because it's like, okay, well you've got this JSON. So we just connect up the JSON that's generated from our UI that goes down and replaces that. It's pretty easy. Then we have these other games that come to us. And once we kind of get it through their mind, what they need to do is like, oh crap, I've hard-coded everything in my client. So I have to spend all this time and all this effort connecting all of these things up so that they can link to user-wise. And even if you don't have user-wise, you have some system that you built yourself or whatever, you, you still have to connect all of those things up to your server, whether it's going to user-wise or not. And and that's a, a non-trivial amount of time. And now if you've been doing all of your coding, especially for a decent mid-sized to large game, like that's non-trivial amounts of work that you have to like go back and do. So I think studios that do that, it's like, well, even if you start thinking about live ops halfway through, it's just like the amount of work, like it, you know, you're kind of nervous about that. So I think that's one mindset. The other thing, which tends to be true of, I think, all entrepreneurs, and I don't know if you guys have uh, Shark Tank over in Finland. Yes.
0: <laughs> I was on the, the Finnish version like 15 years ago. It's really? not on YouTube, but like, I don't know where it is. I so.
1: love it. <laughs> yeah, my, my wife and I have started watching that a little bit. It's, it's kind of fun. But what's interesting with like Shark Tank, and I think pretty much all entrepreneurs is, we all have this tendency into deluding ourselves that the thing that we're making is like the end all be all like the most perfect thing that everyone in the world needs and wants and it's all, all their solutions and stuff. And to be frank, it's usually not usually the way that people are doing things is probably good enough. And, you know, the game that you're making all of the players that you want to come play your game, they probably already playing another game and it's probably pretty fun already. But somehow we're able to delude ourselves that like this experience is perfect the way it is. I don't need to change anything. I don't need to do anything. And somehow all games end up always running out of time and you always have this like crunch, you know, towards the end of them. And like, what are the things that I don't absolutely have to do to get this on launch? And LiveOps tends to be one of those things, except for like the few studios that have built it all along the way. The studios that build it along the way they tend to have better launches overall i find but it, it's like a mindset i think you know if you have that belief that like your game is so good the way that you've made it you don't have to you know have this live ops mindset of oh i need to actually be able to test and verify and try out and try to figure out like how do i optimize every single level how do i change you know each of these events how do i drive better engagement and monetization and all these other aspects because you've kind of deluded yourself into believing that you know your product is the end all be all at least that's my theory i don't know what do you think man
0: yeah i think there's a there's a lot of this interest of letting the game prove itself first with the the kpis like the mvp never has live ops i think also another aspect is developers like most of them like have have this kind of mindset that what the perfect game looks like and usually it doesn't include daily weekly monthly events of all (laughs) sorts running and you seeing the timers and whatnot you're trying to to prove the core loop and everything and it's kind of hard for devs to think about these things then coming and somehow changing what you're experiencing in the game. Because you should be just enjoying it for the game itself. I think that there's a lot of mindset things happening there. Cause it's still such an early industry, especially the the live games. We've only had like 15, 10 years of live games, online games, where you could actually have something like live ops.
1: I think, you know, it, it's a blended element. Like you probably don't need live ops when you get into the technical soft launch. And you probably don't need live ops when you're initially testing, like your core retention, you know, day one, day three, or whatnot. But once you get past that, and here's one aspect where I see a lot of teams neglect on is they don't actually test the content treadmill of their games before going into global launch. And I've seen that bite some people in the butt. So, you know, to me, the ideal spot where I would start to add live ops would be okay once I make sure that all the bugs are out, once I make sure that like the core loop game retains and is fun, then I would start adding live ops and maybe not always just live ops for like the the events and stuff like that, but just being able to, you know, edit your game over the air to try, you know, 10 experience per level versus 20 experience per level and, you know, testing the economy and and balancing different things like that. I think there's a lot of little tweaks that you want to be able to make and to learn and to optimize on, but yeah, that content treadmill, right? Like, what is the cadence that I want to release stuff out. Like if I'm expecting, hey, I want to do one big content release like per week with this you know event that goes along with it. Well, you need to have a live op system and you need to actually test that in soft launch with your team for like a month or two to understand what is the actual effort of our team to be able to put that out because if you commit to that and then your team can't do that, well it's probably going to burn people out or it's just you know going to be a bit of a train wreck. And so I think the best teams that I see will always have live ops before they go into global launch. And then they can test out their content releases. And then as you go into global launch, like you want to keep adding additional content and improving on things, right? And if you have to jump way back and you know to square one to add live ops in as a system and stuff, it can be just really gnarly. Or it becomes spaghetti code that somebody has to untangle at some point in the future and, and nobody has fun with that.
0: Yeah. And uh, like I, I think you hit the nail there with like putting resources, human resources to actually run these campaigns, set it set it up, you know, all these daily events, weekly events, pains, offers, IAP changes, whatnot. So it's it is a lot of work. I hope you guys at user wiser making it easier <laughs> um,
1: well you know it's interesting like it, every so often what we'll do just for fun is we'll take like a top grossing game and we will just go through like the new player experience and we will set up everything in user wise as if it would you know correlate to that game mm. and well i mean one that gives you a taste of like what it's like to be a live ops person because even though our system makes it you know like way faster to set things up like when you're going into raid they still have like eighty or a hundred offers that the user could buy like within the first 5 minutes and they all have to be set up and set up you know exactly the right way and you know behind the scenes they might have ab tests or you know different things that are going on and that's just the offers and there's special events and all the things like people don't realize how much content is constantly running for players and those are just the new players you have every other cohort of players where you have to make sure that you have fun, interesting things, you know, going on for them, a reason for them to come back into the game. And it's, you know, if you're trying to do live ops without like a full-time person to be like in your user-wise or dealing with your spreadsheet or whatever your version of it is, like you're gonna have a really tough time.
0: Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. Think about the the future and web tree growing. That's already a lot more ready, I think for for a live future where you already have so many ties to social media the, to the community and having a more of a live game going on where content is changing and you're adding things. But I, I think there's there could be a situation where we where we forget some of the learnings from free to play as there's more folks transitioning to web3 and yeah, yeah, I think there's there's always going to be the live theme for a big game. H- have you already started working on any web three projects, user wise?
1: Yeah, we've got a few. They tend to be more of the experienced game teams who are like, okay, well, huh. you know, we know we're building this core game, but we know we need to be able to do lots of fun, interesting things on top of it. And I think you know, live ops is more than just like generating additional revenue, I think it's about new experiences, right? Like if I think of League of Legends, you know, one of the most popular things that happens in League of Legends is when they run time-limited events, like different gameplay options, like Earth, Ultra Rapid Fire, where, you know, your cooldown reduction is set to 90% and your mana cost is set to zero. Well, players love that. Like that one keeps coming back because it's just crazy, right? Like you get to play these champions that you never play otherwise because they kind of suck in the traditional mode. But like in Earth, you can just spam your stuff like crazy and and you're amazing. So one, I think it probably generates additional revenue because you're probably buying some of these non-traditional champions and you're probably buying skins for these non-traditional champions that wouldn't monetize otherwise. But it's also like a different variation of the game. So it's like more of the same, but it's also altogether different. And I think that's like what I see as some of the best live ops events. And if you really set up your system correctly, like if I use that example in user-wise, you know, you'd set up an event where your developer and your live ops person would work hand in hand to say, what are the things that I would ever want to change within a game of League of Legends? Maybe allowed champions or disallowed champions, minion health or minion damage, turret health, turret damage, things in the jungle, et cetera. And that's like a gameplay mode event. So now every week, My coding is done once that's hooked up, but the Lyraps person can come in and can invent a new game mode that never existed before. And if you've done that right, like imagine we're testing League of Legends, like I might actually come up with this gameplay mode that players love so much more than the core gameplay experience itself. And that might be what the game ultimately ends up being, right? If you have that level of flexibility built into your game, I think you can try new variations and really uncover some secrets for players.
0: Yeah, that's really good. Hey, before we go to the final questions, I wanted to hear your thoughts about learning entrepreneurship. What are your experiences like going through the journey of picking up stuff for you know, building a company and becoming an entrepreneur, something that the audience could pick up on?
1: So many things. I think the, the biggest thing is entrepreneurship is not for everyone. Entrepreneurship is kind of like riding a roller coaster, It's like, I swear, like some days or some weeks, like I'm just on this high. And then other two weeks, you're just like on this low. And if you're not able to just like, get slapped in the face repeatedly, it's probably not going to be a good experience for you. Like, my wife was telling me, she's like, I, I don't know how you do it. Like, you just keep getting back up and you keep going and go, she's like, I know that I couldn't do it. But eventually something ends up working out for you. And so you've got to have that sort of tenacity or that grit. So if you have the grit, you know, you can prove much be there. I read, you know, hundreds of books. I, I try to keep up with you. I'm maybe not quite there, but I do <laughs> like, you're a little bit ahead of me. So you give me some good books to read. But what I found a lot of those books is like, there's so many different ways that you can find success in entrepreneurship. And everyone is different in different ways. And you don't have to follow a prescribed path. Like, I think I've probably taken like, 50 nuggets from 50 different books and then thrown out the rest of those books and it seems to be working okay for me. Now, you know, I, there could be a prescribed path, but I think everyone's journey is a little bit unique. So, you know, it's really just about finding what works for you, what your culture is, what your vision. I think some, some core nuggets that I would say is having a vision and core values is probably like the first and most important thing to like having you be on a path towards actually accomplishing something, whatever it is that you want to accomplish. I think that's key. Second thing, you need to drastically focus on whoever your ideal customer is on solving a real and meaningful problem for them. And you probably will not know and cannot know what that problem is without spending tons of time Deeply talking to them, deeply understanding them, knowing their lives inside and out. And it should go beyond like when they're using their game, like your game, you should know like the entirety of their lives, like everything in it so that you can understand how your product fits into the overall picture. Because if your product or your game doesn't fit into their picture, it's unlikely that they're going to stick around with it. Now you could become the clash royale. Where you know you're just the game that they play when they poop and everybody poops, even if you want like I, I didn't actually understand that until one time, like I was in a guild for like four or five years and somebody's like, oh yeah, I only play this game like while I poop and everyone else. It's like, oh yeah, I, I play it when I poop too. Like that's you know usually when it's like, okay, well, that's a good retention mechanic, right? It's the right amount of time, you know things like that. Like how does your game actually blend into somebody's lives? But I think I've built so many products that are nice to have. And selling and scaling a nice to have product can be done, but it is brutally hard, and I would not recommend it mm. to anyone go through that pain. It sucks. Whereas if you have that must have product that like truly solves a need and truly fills that void that that person is feeling, it's just magical the difference that you have there. But getting to that must have product without deeply understanding and talking to those people is just vastly hard. So more than anything, I think that's where you have to start with. Yeah.
0: Amazing words. Really good. Hey, last questions for you, Tom. You you said that you're catching me up on the book reading. <laughs> like, can you name, name like a, a favorite one that you've read recently?
1: Okay. So I think you might've been the one that recommended uh, Breathe by James Nestor. Okay. So Could I be. don't know that I completely buy that book, but I'm very much fascinated by that book. And now I just like, I can't get over the idea of potentially the importance of like breathing through your nose and everything. And just like the pure power of breath, like I'm inclined to believe it because I've seen some very interesting things. And now I'm just, I'm also wondering like, what has COVID done to us wearing these masks If the importance of breathing through the nose is there? So that one was like very interesting. I'm currently reading The Metaverse by Matthew Ball, which is a fascinating read. And then before that, a book that I would re- recommend to a lot of people is Give and Take by Adam Grant which talks about kind of two types of people in the world. or Well, three, actually. There's the givers, there's the takers, and then there's kind of everyone else is kind of reciprocal. Very fascinating book, but I, I love pretty much everything by Adam Grant.
0: Nice. Is that one better than the originals? And the think again.
1: Good question. It, it gave me a lot to think about in terms of, so he, he talked about the people that tend to be the least successful in the world tend to be givers. The people that tend to be the most successful in the world also tend to be givers and it's about how you, how you go about doing things. Takers generally don't end up being like the most successful. So if you're always in it for me versus like the givers of like, I just help people because it feels good to help them. I'm not necessarily looking for them to like return the favor. I try to operate my life like that. Like I try to help out, you know, whoever I can, whenever I can, I block off time, in my ca- calendar. Now I don't have all the time in the world. So some ways that I do that is like through the podcast or blogs or, you know, different things like that. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I try to help. And, you know, maybe at some point in time that'll come back, maybe it won't, doesn't really matter to me. I think it feels good to do so, but yeah. So I would say I liked it better and it was like a different perspective on things.
0: But- mm. Right. Yeah. I'll- I haven't read that one. I'll check it out. Tom, do you have a, a story that has shaped you and how you approach your work today?
1: I don't remember the exact story of how it kind of happened. Um, I used to, when I you know kind of worked at my corporate job with you know tons of employees and things like that, I was very much all about like efficiency and doing things. You know, like, can I get through 200 emails today and do X, Y, Z? And then, you know, if I don't do all these things and I don't feel like I've accomplished things, As I have kind of gravitated towards higher level roles and more towards entrepreneurship and things like that, the nature of work changes. And for me, that was really hard because for the longest time, like I felt like uh, I need to like just go on a walk for like three hours and just think. But that was very conflicting to me because I felt like I was just being completely lazy and abusing everyone else that was on the team because like, I'm not doing, you know, I don't feel like I did my full day's work or whatnot, but I think I got feedback from several people as, as well as my coach that was ultimately like, well, your job has fundamentally changed. And I I've seen a shift in, you know, employees and coworkers and folks like that as they've gone from like a product manager to like head of product. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, I need to spend, more of my time just thinking because the nature of technology is it's not about just like pure work right it's it's creative work so creatively solving these problems like i might spend 20 hours just thinking about something maybe it's a new game mechanic maybe i'm just like playing a game until i finally have that light bulb moment of hey here's how i could change it or here's how i can do it let's go try that prototype actually see if that thing works and once you have that creative moment you know, that can be a million X value of your time over just like answering emails or doing those things. But both for me and for a lot of people that I've seen have really struggled in that moment where it's like, well, I, I just feel like I'm being lazy or I'm not doing my my job or my work or things like that. So I think for people that are going through that process or that are planning on, you know, <laughs> rising in the ranks, you've got to be okay with that. And you got to understand the nature of your work and how that's changing and like what you're trying to do
0: amazing story. Hey, last question for you, Tom. People in the audience probably want to check out UserWise. What's the best way to do that then or get in contact with you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty available. You can hit me up on LinkedIn. You can shoot me an email, Tom at userwise.io. You can check out the website, also userwise.io. Yeah, generally, you know, we like to help people, whatever you guys are looking for or working with, even if it's not us, like I'm not opposed to pushing you towards a competitor or anything like that. Like I like to see people find success in what they're building and doing. So if we can help you be successful, that's great.
0: Hey, thanks so much, Tom, for coming on the show. This was such a good chat. There's so many topics we could have talked endlessly (laughs) about gaming and entrepreneurship, but like, yeah, let's do another one at some point.
1: Love it. Anytime, man.
0: Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to my guests for joining the show. If you have time, please go and sign up to our newsletter at EliteGameDevelopers.com slash newsletter. Since every Friday morning, I send out a piece on gaming startups, what I've experienced recently as an investor, things that I'm seeing and thinking about. I really want to share a lot to you guys. So if you have time, please subscribe to the newsletter. That would be awesome. And... I'll see you next week on the podcast. Take care. Bye-bye.